Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, hello out there. How's everyone doing today? I'm excited to share today's episode of Radical Musings and former FBI Director Frank Figaluzzi. I love Frank. We see him on TV. He's always, you know, telling us what's going on on his days of the FBI. He also has a new book coming out. Um, this guy is the real deal. He's principled yet outspoken. He wrote a book called The FBI Way Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. And I consider him to be one of the good guys. We actually met via Twitter. You know, I've been a follower of him for a long time. And then I noticed that he was following me. So we got into some conversations about stuff that's going on. And in this conversation, which took place just before the presidential election, Frank offers some insight into the FBI's relationship with the president, internal investigations, and upholding the law during unprecedented times. My gosh, it's an interesting conversation to listen to now that now we're seeing, you know, what the FBI has had to put up with. And, you know, I have to say, there's some really good guys, and they are uh, doing a good job right now. Thank you. What is the the role of the FBI in the government? Government for people who are listening to this that may not know you, may not understand that, and are tuning in. And like, what is the FBI's role in the government? So the FBI is the primary law enforcement agency of the United States government, and it's um, by executive order, by presidential order, they are the primary agency for counterintelligence. But they also have over 300 criminal violations federally that they're responsible for. And unlike really any other agency in the United States government, they wear two hats. They are part of the, and a lot of people don't, don't quite understand this, although it's gotten really, um, it's got a lot, a lot of coverage since sadly the, the Russia threat and the special inquiry. People are more than ever before understanding the FBI wears two hats. They're part of the intelligence community, so they are an intelligence agency and they're part of the law enforcement community. And actually very few nations do it like that. Um, in fact, our, our closest allies, if you look at Australia, Canada, the United Kingdom, they, they still have this wall up between law enforcement and intelligence. And it's, it's very, very understandable um, so, you know, for example, famously, the United Kingdom, the Brits have, have uh, the, the, the MI5. MI5. Which is like RCIA? Is that, is it, or, no, is, no, or no, like you guys? That's, that's right. The MI5 is their domestic intelligence agency, kind of like the FBI. Okay. But they don't have guns and badges. So if, it, if, if they're following a terrorist around or a spy around and it comes time to make an arrest, they have to call the police. And that, that might be, you know, the Metropolitan Police in Scotland Yard. It might be one of their special uh, branch units in a, in a local police department. But that it's really kind of weird. And the Canadians have the same thing with RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And then they have a security, internal security agency. So um, the FBI is pretty cool in that regard. And a lot of people freak out about that kind of power. They think, oh, my, um, why, why is there so much power there? And... The, there's actually, they're missing the point because there's a beauty in that combined responsibility that, that gets us, gets the Bureau much farther along. After 9-11, Rosanna, you, you may recall there were calls for the FBI to actually break up or be, or be dismantled um, because it was viewed, you know, they, the view was, hey, look, everybody failed. Um, 9-11 happened and this, is, this isn't working. And people said, we're going to need an agency just like the Brits and the Canadians that does nothing but domestic intelligence. And we said, hold on, time out. Let me, let's explain how the beauty of this. You understand when you work drugs, you run into informants who tell you that terrorists are crossing the Mexican border. When you work white collar crime, there's sources that tell you Russians 
are infiltrating the mortgage fraud business and they used to be KGB officers. So there's this holistic approach and Congress got it after we showed them, no, 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 don't, don't bifurcate the FBI, don't dismantle us. There's actually beauty to this. It, they, they got it. I would say you're one of the good guys in the FBI. Have you come across people that have been in the FBI that are actually not good guys and maybe working for the other side have infiltrated you guys and in some way? Yeah, yeah, there's 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 good news and then there there's uh, not so good news. So the good news is that unlike many major police departments like Los Angeles or New York City or Chicago, there has never been systemic corruption in the FBI. And I could talk for an hour about why that is. Actually, in in my book that's coming out soon, The FBI Way, it talks about some of the reasons why we we never saw systemic corruption in the Bureau. Part of it is um, they don't like to assign you back home. So they they kind of keep you off balance in the sense that you're never going to get in that comfort zone where you're going to end up investigating your buddies, your family, you know, and people aren't going to um, really get a hold of you and, and control you. Um, the other thing is the FBI has just a ton of rules and regulations and a ton of supervision. We, we could talk about that. but The FBI right now, I mean, seems like Barr, right? Tells you what, well, you used to work for the FBI. If you were there right now, he'd be telling you what you had to do, right? That would be your boss? Yeah. So, to, yes, to, to kind of, um, I, don't, I don't want to give short shrift to your your lead question, which is, hey, have, have you ever seen, you know, bad apples? And the yeah. answer is, of course, absolutely, I have. Yeah. And in fact, for a portion of my career, I, I was in charge of an internal affairs section um, in the FBI. So I've seen those internal investigations, and the FBI polices itself really hard. But the, but the most personal example I can give you, Rosanna, of an agent going bad was a guy who actually was my boss at a, for a time. He was a unit chief at headquarters in the counterintelligence division. He was a guy by the name of Robert Hansen. He was the worst spy in FBI history. And during his years of spying for the Russians, he was responsible for giving them the names of at least 10 Russians who were cooperating with the U.S. intelligence community those 10 people were killed. They were executed by the Russians when he gave them um, their names. So I've seen the worst of that. And was and, that under Putin's that's Putin regime time? Um, uh, yes, Putin's been, Putin's been in power for so long that, yeah. yes, unfortunately, the answer is yes, and Putin will continue to be in power. Um, Putin is ruthless and will execute people. Um, when he thinks they've gone south on him. So, so that answers that question. Now, now you've asked a, a far more like topical current question, which is, what do you do when the FBI, as apolitical and neutral as it tries to be, is overseen by an attorney general at DOJ who is essentially a partisan uh, And the answer is, uh, it was an awful time in his to be um, in the FBI um, because you have a director right now in Chris Ray who is literally fighting for his job. As, as you and I speak today, yeah. the news reports are already out that the, direct, the director is essentially fighting for his job right now and that Trump is again talking about firing him right after the election. If Joe Biden wins, should he keep Christopher Ray? Yeah, look, the, 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 absolutely. When Joe Biden wins. <laughs> we, yeah, I, we can get into we can oh, get, we can get into soon enough the the ways this this election could be hijacked. But I know. Let's let's yeah. talk about why the FBI director has a ten year term. He has a ten. He or she has a ten year term to avoid the political partisanship and to not be beholden to any one president. But look what's happened. Trump has broken that understanding. He fired Jim Comey. Jim Comey had, had less than four years on the job. And, and now here comes Chris Ray. He's got even less, I believe. And if you, if you keep doing that, you actually destroy the FBI as a nonpartisan, trusted, credible 
institution. And I, I fear that that's where we're going with this. And it is an awful, awful time. So, I mean, it's terrifying. All of, I mean, do you feel any hope for us? We do have domestic terrorists, um, white supremacists in our country that are as bad as ISIS in our country. You know, when will we say that they are terrorists, domestic terrorists? Do you think that's important to do? Yeah. You, so you've asked a compound question. So let me, let me do, let me, you, you first started by asking if I have hope. And the short answer is yes. Okay. Um, my career was spent in the Bureau and now in the national media preparing for and trying to predict worst case scenarios, but at the same time working toward the best possible results. And I, what I keep reminding people, Rosanna, is this nation, as you well know, has been through much worse than this. We've had civil war, presidential assassinations, violent protests in the streets during the civil rights movement, um, and Vietnam protests. People forget police stations were being blown up. Um, National Guard killed a student on campus at State. Um, you know, we've had presidents impeached and we had a 9-11 terror attack that killed thousands of us. And somehow we, we were able to come back from that. And I would assert come back even stronger from, from all of that. So I have, to, I have to hold out hope. I have to hold out hope. But, you know. What- I've never felt this. Like I grew up in this, like I was a child in the 60s, but there's a, there's a darkness. There's a, even with our worst, like the guys that, you know, I wasn't a Bush supporter, but at least these guys actually believed in the rule of law and our constitution, even if you didn't agree with them. Yeah. I don't think we've ever seen this ever like this in this country. No, I have to, uh, sadly, I have to agree with you. And and look, even Richard Nixon, um, who clearly engaged in a cover-up, he he got it. He he was a lawyer by trade. He understood that there was damage being done to the country, and for the good of the country, he needed to step down. Now, there might have been some selfish reasons as well. He wanted to avoid getting booted, but at least he got it. We We have a president right now that... I really think is all about self-interest over national interest. And disturbingly, he's surrounded by people that seem to be far more loyal to him than to the constitution. So yes, there are elements of what we're experiencing that should really concern us. And even someday when Trump leaves off at some point, we've got a laundry list of things that have to get fixed because Rosanna, we've assumed, you know, our whole on the note that uh, people will generally follow the rules, right? Three equal branches. People will generally show up when they're subpoenaed by Congress. No, we have, we have an attorney general who's supposed to represent America. He'll probably do that. Well, guess what? It's not happening. No, it's not, it's not happening. We got to fix some of the gaps. There's a, a laundry list of uh, charges against the president and probably his family and, and some of the uh, nefarious things that they've been involved with war, um, making money and on our dollar. Do you think that the charges will be made and we will be able to prosecute him? You know, I had a, uh, I wrote, I, I now have a regular column um, that, that actually has just launched and with MSNBC daily, it's called. And this week, one of my columns is on this topic of whether or not. I didn't see that. I got to see that. Yeah, it's well, it's the, the headline is something like, you know, debate questions we need answered or national security questions we still need answered. And one of them is this question of whether Joe Biden is going to get behind a kind of Times Commission to look at the wrongdoing of the Trump administration. And I, I, I've already heard legal analysts saying, hey, listen, for the good of the country, for the healing of the country, we need to let this go. And we, we need we, we can't be focused on you know, um, uh, indicting all of the Trump cronies uh, because that will become the singular focus of the Biden administration and distract from any good work he wants to do. I come at it from a different perspective, Rosanna. I, my perspective is this isn't run-of-the-mill wrongdoing by these folks. Exactly. This is wrongdoing that goes to the heart of our democracy. When you have an attorney general, and by the way, you know, a former attorney general, um, in sessions who were involved in putting families in cages, separating 
breastfeeding children from no, their mothers as a strategy, not as an accident, not as an unfortunate byproduct, but as a strategy. When you have a head of DHS, Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, um, who's pushing that, and, and you have a DNI who is lying to the public and putting out Russian propaganda, and similarly with a, with a Secretary of State in Pompeo, who's doing the bidding of, of a president un, un, in an unlawful manner. You can't just go, eh, let's let bygones be bygones and move on. We have to send a message that this kind of thing cannot be tolerated and there are consequences because it will happen again. But it will, and, and that's what's terrifying. This is it's criminal. All of this is all this corruption. I've, we've never seen this. And it's, it really is waking up in this anxiety that we're the whole world of America, all of America and the world for us is that this was, we really are a joke in the world right now. It's terrible what's happened. And he did this to us. How do you, how do you make this work for yourself that you're here, you're doing this every day. You seem really calm, really together, really. Okay. Um, you have a family, you're married, you have children? I do. Um, yes, yes to all of the above. And my, I am married and have been married for 35 years, um, which I can tell you, I know Hollywood has its own track record with marriages, but so does the FBI. So in all of the moves that I've had to make in my career, you would think that would put a horrible strain on, on a family. But the reality is that um, you know, I've had a very strong a woman um, who was, you know, who was in for the ride and uh, has helped hold us together. My two boys are grown and married. I am a grandfather of three. Oh, that's great. Do you love being a grandfather? Oh, man, it's really neat. It's neat. It's, it's everything they say about, you know, grandparenting that, um, you know, it's all of the fun without the responsibility is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yeah. And so, do you because it's like this is really you know the world is falling apart and the podcast is really about people that I have admired and out there and what they do and how they tick and what makes them work and what makes them you know do what they do and then the personal part of it like going home and being with your wife and having dinner do you have like certain uh, rules of date nights do you to, to connect with her when things are so overwhelming right now like how do you how do you stay in the bubble of your your relationship? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. Um, it there, I think this concept of work-life balance is something in, intriguing to me because I do a lot of uh, speaking to young people who I think have a different concept of it um, than, than I do, which is, it's, a, it's likely a generational thing. So, um, you know, with people in their twenties, I hear them complaining that they had a tough week at work. And they didn't, you know, they didn't get home on time and they didn't get to do this or that. And it's a very kind of narrow, limited view of what work-life balance is. My experience in the FBI has been far um, a broader and 30,000-foot view, which is, okay, I don't want to hear about a bad week. Understand that you have bad months and you may have a bad year. Where, and by that, I mean... Your focus has been so much on life and death, national security issues, or the big case, right? That you have to understand when it's time to, to put the game face on and go. And that, that might be every Monday weekend because bad guys have to get addressed. Or a year of absolute hell. For example, um, 9-11 followed quickly by the anthrax attacks the next month. People yes. seem to forget that that juxtaposition, right? Which were I had you, to, were you involved with that? Did you were you like yeah. watching that closely? Yeah, well, I was more than watching that. So at the time, I was the number two official in the FBI's Miami field office. If you recall, fourteen of the nineteen hijackers came from South Florida. So that realization um, shut down our office and the kind of investigative work that had to go on. I mean, it was, it was phenomenal and unprecedented. And so that turmoil in the FBI, we're trying to bring calm to chaos. We're trying to figure out who these guys were, where did they come from, the crime scenes and evidence recovery in each of their apartments, reviews of everyone they ever came in contact with, piecing this all together. And then boom, before we can come up with air, a guy dies of anthrax poisoning in Boca Raton, Florida. 
and I become the on-scene commander of the largest hazardous materials crime scene in the history of the FBI. You may recall that that mailing tracks and that that death of an employee was at the American Media Incorporated headquarters, the tabloid newspapers, the Enquirer, the Sun, right? And and that three story, sixty thousand square foot building was filled with microscopic anthrax spores. So it was one crisis after another. So just to get back to the question, look, you've got to stay grounded. Something has to ground you in life. Um, and hopefully that's a combination of healthy living, exercise, diet, nutrition. You know, it's in the crisis when we all abandon that. You know, it's time to break out the, the donuts and the coffee. That's the worst time to do that. And, um, and then having a family that reminds you what the real priorities are. Even, even in, the, you know, Rosanna, I'll go out to town here in, uh, in Arizona and go to the grocery store or what have you. People will come up to me and say, I watch you all the time. I, I watch MSNBC all the time. And I, the first thing I tell them, Rosanna, is please don't do that. Please, please don't spend all of your waking hours focused on the news cycle and focus only on what's negative about life because we need you in the battle, but we can't if you're stressed out and anxious. So, um, help. Boy, did I need to hear that. So uh, thank you because I've been, I'm, I'm so flipped out of all my girlfriends. We're just, it's just too much. It's gotten too much and you're right. And thank you for that. Cause that's, that's exactly, uh, it, the, it, the energy of, of this news, it's, we're bombarded every day. I, and you deal with it every day. Every day it's a new story. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is Frank saying? <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you've got to take a breath, uh, call time out. But I, I, I will be very honest with you. This, this period we're in right now, and I have a prediction, sadly, that the period that we're about to enter, which is this potential flashpoint between Election Day and Inauguration Day, Yes. Um, really does trouble me. And I'm, I'm prepared for, uh, as I said, prepared Are you prepared for, for a civil war? I'm, I'm there. Wow. Because there's so many threats on both sides. It's, it's getting crazy. And I'm very concerned about that myself. I mean, people are guns are, and ammunition is being sold out. Like what is happening here? This is true. Um, I can tell you here in Arizona, it's, um, it's virtually impossible to even purchase ammunition. And let alone a weapon, um, they're they're not here. Uh, they're they're flying off the shelves, and so this troubles me. But even deeper, um, my sources in the law enforcement community and those sector intelligence analysis business tell me that what we're seeing in chat rooms and blogs and communications, both public and private, um, among the most violent extreme groups, that they are for civil war. Um, they, some of them think that it's already started. Um, and of course, we have a president who's not only doing nothing to stop it, but he's seems fanning to be it. encouraging it. Mm-hmm. He's encouraging, he's fanning the flames of it. And he's, and he's, that's, the, those are his people right now. I mean, we all witnessed the most horrific thing I've ever seen in my life. And I couldn't even watch the eight minutes and 45 seconds of George Floyd being murdered by a police officer, everyone said, we've had enough. What did you, as a, you know, ex-FBI, think of this moment? We marched peacefully. And, and then, you know, people are getting, starting to get gassed. And uh, yeah. please explain so, this to me because it's just, it's overwhelming. And I, I, I want to hear what you have to say. It's been, well, it's interesting. Having spent 25 years uh, carrying a gun and a badge, I will naturally defer and be very reticent to quickly comment on television when we don't have all the facts. But, and so I'm, I'm, I, I tend to default to the rough job that a cop has on the street and I want to give him or her every benefit of the day. When, when that day, I, I still remember it when that video was displayed for the first time on TV, I, I turned to the person who was watching it with, and I said, we're watching a homicide in progress. This is, this is a, this is a homicide and you'll hear this, but it's true. You'll hear this a lot. And it's true. The, 
the folks who are the most adamantly opposed to bad cops, good cops. They give all good cops a very bad name. And they make, look at, look at how hard the job has become since the George Floyd murder. Uh, because we're seeing, is there an infiltration of white supremacists who've come in and want to be police officers? And so we got to vet, we got to like, if you have any of that in your history, you cannot be a police officer. That's it. Right. I, Do you- I love this topic. I love the topic. Um, of how we get better at policing. And I tell people that perhaps, this is my opinion, but perhaps the worst phrase that could ever have been imagined was defund the police. Um, I say restructure it all in that we have people who are there to serve the community and help people and not be there and, and, you know, arrest black people of the color of their skin and then torture them and kill them quietly in the back of a road. And, and that's happening. It's happening all across the country. And that needs to, that cannot happen anymore. How do we yeah, the phrase, Rosanna, the phrase I use is reimagine the police. Imagine. Reimagine the police. Imagine a much better way of policing the community. And in fact, this defund the police mantra is actually dangerous because it might be that if we do this right, the budgets in cities and states might have to be increased. Mm-hmm. You, you, you hit on something really near and dear to my heart, which is the issue of recruiting getting, and screening the right people for candidates. Most departments are going to run because it's all about money. It's all about money. They, you know, and the police are the first to get cut. And so that that's reflected in what they do to screen candidates. The most progressive departments that I have seen spend a lot of money in the select and recruitment of officers. I mean, psychological studies. I mean, interviews that include members of the community, members of the minority community, right? Citizens that just ask the hard questions. And there are professional tools that can be used to, to show someone is more likely to default to violence than another person. Someone has great verbal soft skills to de-escalate a tense situation. But those are extensive screening processes. And so we have to reimagine this. And then I love the idea of being able to embed mental health professionals um, so that it can respond to the right calls, not the dangerous domestic call where, where there's a report of a weapon. No, but rather let's take off the, the shoulders of our police officers that we're asking them to do. There are departments where cops have to, have to you know, take someone home or, or have to uh, get a parent to a teacher conference because their kid's getting suspended. And I mean, truancy, juvenile truven, truancy, um, um, intervening in a child, mother in the house. This, this stuff has to go somewhere else. Um, and we've we got to figure that out. Well, speaking of that, um, and, and I, because I, did you come across in your time uh, the sex trafficking and how it's turned into such a huge $96 billion business around the world, especially with children. And, and, and it's terrifying what's happening. And I know that uh, one of the girls, uh, Maria Farmer came out to the FBI 25 years ago and told all about Jeffrey Epstein and the FBI didn't do anything at the time. Why do you think that was? So I'm going to, I'm going to plead. So the, the answer to your first question is, do I, have I had an involvement in sex trafficking and, and crimes against children? The answer is yes. Um, for a very unpleasant uh, portion of my career, I actually supervised one of the first crimes against children squads in the FBI. It happened to be in the San Francisco field office. Wow. Um, and that particular time I had young, my kids were young mm-hmm. and I found this in it almost unbearable uh, task uh, to supervise because just when you thought you had seen the worst, um, you'd come in the next day and see something even far worse. Uh, I, I don't even you know, get into it here as to what, what those agents have to see every single day, but, but thank God for them with, um, and, and, and then later, later in my career, when I became head of the FBI in Northern Ohio, we started a new approach. We had a, we had a juvenile problem. And um, it was centered in Toledo, of all places. And I can, I can tell you 
length about the factors that make a city ripe for that kind of exploitation. But it had a lot to do with trucking and transportation and being kind of near an international border with Canada. And so it was a perfect storm and, and a horrible economy, by the way, just a crashing economy. So you have this perfect storm that gets um, young girls attracted to pimps and, and allegedly to make some cash, truck stops, et cetera. And then they go national and, and young girls being trafficked to special events around the country, the Super Bowl, the political conventions. And here's the bottom line to the approach we took, which was radically different which was we had to stop treating those girls as criminals Yes, because the, the history has been, okay, it's prostitution. But they're rape theft. victims. Yeah. They're, they're molested they're, girls that are rape victims and they're in trauma. And right. so when a pimp, they're not going to the pimp to make cash. The pimp, they're, they're already in trauma. And that right. is what that's, that's the language that needs to change. And that's what's so dangerous is well, healing but, that trauma. Yeah. Precisely. So, so recognizing that, we got police departments on board and the sheriff's departments. And then we partnered with private humanitarian organizations in, in town, right? This was an unprecedented partnership. And instead of taking the criminal approach, which all it does is, as you pointed out, all that does is lock a girl up overnight at best, right, in, in, in juvenile. If, if you've got space in some juvenile, likely they're in an adult lockup. And then... Who bails them out? The pimp, their savior, their savior once again. So you're actually you're actually perpetuating that cycle, and you're you're strengthening the role of the pimp in their life. Who bails them out? So we took another approach, which was, you're not getting arrested. We'd have a victim witness specialist come alongside the the law enforcement officer and ask basically a simple question: What do you need to get out of this? We need to get out of this. And when you do that and establish trust with the right specialists, you say things like, I got no place to sleep. I got no place to live. I got no money. You say, that's something for you. And all they go to the private organization that's going to shelter them. It's going to take care of them. It's going to give them some skills. And eventually when trust is developed, they start giving up their pimp. And that happened over and over again in Toledo to the point where we started taking down dozens of nationwide pimp operations out of Toledo, Ohio. So it can be done. It, it's got to be viewed correctly. And this outmoded system of, you know, that's the crime. These girls are criminals. is just simply um, abysmal, quite honestly. Tarana Burke is now doing such incredible, extraordinary work with her Me Too movement, but now it's all about healing and, and, and bringing girls uh, that have been raped or, and boys and, and, and going through the healing process of healing trauma. So it's, I wish there was a way to join forces like the way you're talking about, because it, it is all about recovery and healing from that. And it's a huge, it's a huge problem as we're seeing. I, I don't know if you know about... I mean, I'm sure you know about it, but the Pornhub, which is one of the big, is the biggest pornography uh, site in the world. And they have on this site daily, and I really want to tell you this, is if you don't know, they have the rapes of children all day long on this site. And it exists. It's called Pornhub. Check it out, Frank. Help. Because it's it should be shut down. And I'm telling you, like, so many people, Bill Maher, everybody like talks about Pornhub. This is, they have the rape of children where, you know, people send in their private videos to this place and they, they put them on and it's, and, and they, they, it, it's mind geek and all these people are involved with, with this gigantic business and showing the rape of children on Pornhub. And I wish somebody would do something about it. Cause this is wrong. This is so wrong. And I don't know how they get away with it, but there's a woman named Layla McElwaith that I love you to meet who's really working very hard to try to shut it down, at least bring attention to this because it's important. So um, it's interesting that, that that's still going on. And I'm not, so I'm not naive, of course, that to think because I've seen the worst of it. But the good news here is that slowly but surely we took down – we. You know, it, it, it's like playing whack-a-mole. It, it really is. But Backpage, Craigslist, this issue in terms of, of trafficking um, juveniles for yeah. prostitution, right? And, of course, their attitude was, 
I, we don't know who's paying for the ad. We don't know, you know, we, we don't know if this girl's great, but, you know, and they kind of play. And of course it was realized that, well, this is really your, this almost the sole source of your income. If you're back page, um, you're, you know, some, some phenomenal percentage of their profit was coming from, from prostitution ads and specifically underage prostitution ads. So um, that thankfully um, that's largely been taken out. Now you're, you're saying that this kind of mean, if there's any such thing as mainstream um, adult video site is also has actual unlawful child porn. That's I'm going to get you in touch with her because I, it's, 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 it's not only that it's actually the rape, horrible rapes of children that they stream and they, it, and it's all around the world. It's just nuts. And I don't know how they get away with it. And she's been working really hard. We've protested to take it down. It's just horrendous. And the people that are behind it and people, it's the biggest porn site in the world that everybody goes to. And it, and this is on there. So like, how, how can that be? How is that that we, we, we people watch the rape of children and it could be home movies. It's, it's really horrific. I can't, I can't, I can't watch it. Well, you, you know, you're actually, you, you kind of, this is almost a springboard to a larger topic about the impact of social media and green time that we're all spending, uh, particularly these days. And because I talk about this a lot, Rosanna, with regard to the QAnon movement, with regard to um, just the complete quackery that people are buying into. And, right. and it, it, this it, isn't quackery. This, I feel like they're a plant of, of their, the QAnon is actually the gaslighting because yes. we have a president right. of the United States who has uh, charges mm-hmm. against him from raping a 13-year-old girl. No, no, and I, I, let me be clear. I don't intend to, I'm not saying that, that the, uh, the child porn problem is quackery. What I'm saying is there's a, I'm seeing a similarity between, um, the impact of, of social media in making things accessible that were never that accessible before. And so the fact that you can spend all day on a screen, in front of a screen and get fed disinformation and propaganda from foreign adversaries, from fake news sites and et cetera, et cetera. And we could have QAnon take hold is a very similar phenomenon to the fact that you can dial up and Google and search even in the dark web, just about anything you can think of and many things that you could never think of. And so it's become a plague sense and the governance around, we've got to shift our thinking on, you know, I, I'm a big privacy uh, uh, advocate. Don't get me wrong, because because it, coming out of law enforcement, you better understand the lines with privacy and and rights and 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 then curing people. It's there's a fine line, but Silicon Valley platforms are waking up to the fact that we can't have unfettered nonsense and then straight out illegality like child porn take place. There's got to be regulation. And if there's any good coming out of this horrible time we're in, I'm seeing an unprecedented partnership between law enforcement and those social media platforms. Entities that almost would never talk to each other before are now working side by side 24-7 to try and knock out the sites that that are going to destroy the election or, in the case you're raising, the sites that are destroy children. Yeah, for me, it's like I I don't care if you're – a Democrat or a Republican, if you if you do this with children, you rape children, you're a pedophile. End of story. It's like there's no you just like and you need to just go off the planet, go to jail, whatever, because it's just that is like the worst crime to me. Ever. I could I'm having super that I can tell you you are correct. I want to ask you, so tell me about your book. And I know it's coming out and it's called the FBI um, way inside the Bureau's code of excellence. Um, tell me, tell me about this book. Yeah. Thank, thanks for asking. Look, I, I'm current time period has caused me to do something. I swore I, which is write a book. And I, I didn't want to be that guy who wrote, he, I, I come out of all clandestine career and then I'm going to write all about it. But I have to tell you, my mind was changed when I could no longer stand the bashing 
of the intelligence community and specifically the FBI, which is a, an organization I just love and spent 25 years dedicated to, I couldn't take it anymore because I thought that number one, it was damaging the actual effectiveness of the FBI. When that, when that agent goes to a door and flashes her credential and asks for help from a citizen, you can't have that door slammed in the agent's face. And today, because of the damage that this president has done, the institution, by the way, it's all institutions. It's yeah. the, the Centers for Disease Control, for God's sakes, is being damaged and planned. So that's, it, that's enough. And I'm going to try and defend the Bureau, but I'm also going to do it in a way that doesn't claim the FBI is perfect. It is not. And the book is not that book. The book is, look, I've got another side to this. I was inside. And I can tell you that not only is it the horrible deep state place that, that it's being portrayed by some people in Washington, but rather it could actually be a model of how it adheres and preserves to values. So the book's about the intersection of values and leadership, which I say are two things we are sorely lacking. You worked with for or, you know, with uh, Robert Mueller, right? He, yeah, he, he when I, you know, again, I point... It's funny. The answer is yes. And, and so when I was assistant director, he was the director. And so, but just, you can see how I'm reacting even to that question because years ago, we never cared, right? That, oh, you, who did you work for? No, it, it didn't matter. It, we were FBI agents, right? right? I worked for all the directors for 25 years, right? And, and yet, People, you know, on social media go, oh, that's the guy who worked for Mueller. He must be biased because Mueller became the special counsel. No, I, I was just there, right? And I, I, just, I worked for Louis Free. You know, I, I worked, I, I came in, uh, there were director sessions, right? It, it, it's not an issue. But yes, I, I would spend my lovely early mornings every morning with the director's briefing and um, I've got many stories to tell about what it's like to sit around the conference table every single morning <laughs> and brief the director of the FBI, who's about to head out to the White House. In those days, imagine this, the FBI director actually briefed the president um, on a regular basis and get him yeah. ready for that. Yeah, and, of course they did. And that, and that stopped when once the Trump administration came in, he, he, he didn't want that. Yeah, so under, that, do you think that's because that's his uh, orders are coming from Putin? Look, um, somebody other the, than the American interest is is controlling this president, and he will not go against Putin no matter what. I think. Look, the the unanswered question of our time, Rosanna, is whether or not we have had an American president who, in some way, shape, or form, has been compromised by a foreign power, and. I'm, I'm being generic about the foreign power because we've just, as you know, we've just recently learned that the president has a bank account he's never disclosed in China. Yeah. You know, that, that in 2017 went from having almost nothing in it to having $17.5 million in it during Trump's first year um, as president. So um, there's something else going on here. And this gets me to another topic that we may not even have time for, which is we seem to be really bad at vetting. You know, we just talked about vetting and screening police candidates. Yeah. We, we seem to be hard at vetting and screening presidents. I, I really, I, and people get, I got hammered a couple of weeks ago. I was on MSNBC and I talked about this issue of, hey, it's time to rethink how we, how we vet our presidential candidates. I mean, even now you see, you see allegations that, you know, Biden, had some undisclosed business with China and his son and blah, blah. You're going to hear that in the debate. You know, the final debate, I'm sure, will hit that hard. We, we need answers to all kinds. And we've just operated on trust. And, you know, oh, we have a long campaign. The campaign lasts, you know, two years. We, we figure it out. The media will find something. Well, guess what? They, they failed with Trump. And people on the street are often asking me, how could we have Trump? How come he didn't get? How did he pass a background clearance? Look, we don't we don't run a background check on a, on an elected official. You voted for him. You got him, right? We, we got need a, a mental health check on every president that comes to decide. I, 
Absolutely, no, I, I, I'm for mandatory financial disclosures. Yeah. And I, I mean beyond your tax returns. I'm, I'm talking about financial analysis. And then I'm all for a holistic health um, report. You, caveat emptor, buyer beware. Know what you're getting. I think that's so smart. So today, just even today, uh, there's evidence of Iran and Russia interfering with the election. What can you tell us about that? Well, you're you're uh, you're going to get my blood pressure up because okay, I don't <laughs> want to do that. I want you to be calm and have a nice night with your wife. Yeah, <laughs> but the the um, the press conference announcing, you know, the press conference led by the DNI, John Ratcliffe, oh. um, who unfortunately Corrupt. is one of the least credible sources right now we can have. Yeah. Didn't, didn't tell us anything other than Iran and Russia have gained access into voter registration data. And in the case of Iran, they've used your identity and address to send you threatening messages. Okay. What we didn't get was more telling, which is how did they do it? Where are the holes? And most importantly, how do we fix this? Because what I'm hearing, um, Rosanna, from the reporter friends I have who are digging deeply into this is this was a full-blown hack. This, Russia and Iran were to find the vulnerabilities. And by the way, not, very, not with great difficulty. And they went said, to the Proud Boys. Don't you think they went in and did it with them? No. Oh, okay. No, no. No, no, no. This was a direct hit, direct hacks right into the most vulnerable operating systems in your county and state voter registration uh, offices. So we've known for years, Rosanna, that we have ancient operating systems, you know, Windows, you know, Civil War Windows, right? We have, we have ancient systems running some of our local and county uh, voting systems. And so no surprise that Mitch McConnell, when repeatedly asked to fund security for these systems, bill after bill, request after request, what was his response? Our system of voting is a state system. We're not going to help them. Well, here's, here's the result of that. You have not only 50 different ways of doing it, but now start multiplying the counties in each state, and you have hundreds, if not thousands of different systems that are responsible for securing our voter information. And so my question is, if you can hack, if an adversary can hack in fairly easily to some of these, through some of these holes, and get your voter registration information, can they delete your voter registration? Can they move your polling place so that when you show up on election day, they they you at that site and tell you to go across town? What, 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 what more? Is this just a signal? Is just this the beginning of, of showing us what they're capable of doing? I know. And, then, and then move it from the registration data to the actual election count itself. Now, you'll hear many people say that the count can't be messed with. There's encryption, et cetera. I'm here to tell you that that's not accurate, that the, the voting booth itself is maybe standalone. You hear, you hear the equipment companies that always tell you, oh, it's a standalone uh, voting. It's not connected to anything. Uh, No, there's a router that tallies up the votes and sends it to your county headquarters or your town hall, right? That's the the point that's going to get attacked. And it has, in testing, been successfully breached. So it's not the voting booth I'm talking about. It's the way you electronically transmit and tally your results to county headquarters. So... There's only three, I don't know if you know this, but all of the voting equipment in the United States is manufactured by just three companies. And one of those companies controls 60% of the market in that. Um, So getting to that point, exactly. Ivanka Trump had voting machines. She has the patent to voting machines in China. She had voting machines made on top of coffins and body bags um, before, before the virus. Do you know that? Did you know that? I'm aware of her of her patents. I'm aware of her business dealings with regard to uh, election equipment and machinery. Yes, I am. And so when I keep hearing about Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, well, I, I have to ask, 
Where is the investigation of the Trump children and their profiteering off of this presidency? And they don't find anything. There's nothing on Hunter Biden. They right. just that's the only thing they have to gnaw on. And yeah, it's just, exactly, exactly. Did, hey, can I ask you? Did you see uh, uh, the the Sasha Baron Cohen Borat? Yeah. By the way, I funny. yeah, I, I think I think he's hysterical. And I I, I will say this. I, in fairness, we know that Rudy Giuliani's response to this so far has been that it's the video is a total fabrication. That that so that's interesting. We'll see how this plays out. But um, you know, I don't know what that means. So, Rudy, what part of that was a fabrication? The part where you were lying on your back on a bed in a hotel room with a young girl alone is that was that fabricated? Down your pants. Yeah, or the part where your hand was down your pants. Which, which part of that was somehow fabricated? I'm so honored that you were here, Frank and Lucy, and I thank you and uh, thank your wife for uh, taking good good care of you. And, I would pass that on. Let's all understand what's really happening here, and I really um, thank you for all your work and look forward to reading your book. Thank you. It's been a great discussion. Um, anytime, Rosanna. Stay well, stay healthy. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Take bless. care. Bye now. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review Radical Musings to help other listeners find the show and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast to be alerted every time we post a new episode. Radical Musings is brought to you by Audio Up, produced by Krista Liney and Carla Braun, edited by Jeremiah Zimmerman, production support provided by Ashley Ardent, Sam Winter, Tyler Dorson, Emma Rappold, and Richard Regal. Thank you all so much. Hey, how'd it do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.